It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with associate editor at the Claremont Institute, Spencer Clavin. He is the features editor at The American Mind and the host of The Young Heretics Show, which you can find at youngheretics.com. He's someone who is very interested in writing about uh, the way that we can, uh, you know, analyze culture through a, uh, a lens of conservative philosophy. He's also the author of the book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, which you can find at uh, Amazon in, for pre-order. Uh, it is coming out next year. I hope that you will find our conversation, which centers around a new article that he's written for the Claremont Review of Books uh, on the nature of the multiverse theory and how much it's being applied to our modern pop culture. It's something that's obviously uh, very front of mind for those of us who pay attention to Marvel's cinematic universe, but it pops up in lots of other places as well. And Spencer does a very good job of analyzing why that's happening and what it tells us about the nature of modern pop culture. Spencer Clavin coming up next. Jason in the house, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It is my pleasure. Glad to be here. So I read with interest this piece that you have uh, in the uh, CRB about uh, the multiverse uh, and you take it surprisingly seriously as a topic. Um, how much work did you have to do internally to get Claremont to actually pay attention to this as being a serious topic? <laughs> That's a great question. I think the opening paragraph is sort of aimed at answering that question. And it's actually, you know, I should say Claremont was really uh, good about, you know, they, they immediately sort of saw the point of what I was trying to get across. But uh, I think we kind of miss out on the uh, extent to which these major pop culture phenomena, even if they aren't that interesting to intellectuals or they seem kind of low grade, they're obviously expressive of something that people find compelling. And so as somebody that is interested in the life of the mind, it just seems like, you know, we ought to be paying attention to this sort of thing. You know, one of the things that I think is unfortunate about uh, conservatives uh, in this day and age is that there's a significant uh, portion of the movement that is given to the idea uh, that uh, culture is essentially decadent at this moment. It doesn't deserve the time of day, uh, shouldn't be taken seriously, shouldn't be evaluated as more than, uh, let's say, junk food. Uh, kind of uh, being put out by uh, capitalist Hollywood studios. Uh, And that does seem to me to be something that uh, misses many of the 
interesting elements uh, that these storylines actually have in terms of telling us about American culture. I'm curious whether you agree with that, and also, if that is the case, what you think the primary takeaways are from the popularity of these particular genres in this day and age. Well, I definitely agree with that. And I think we can hold both thoughts in our head at once. We can have a critique of the sort of staleness of a lot of the stuff we see on streaming. I mean, it's hard to miss the fact that so many of the shows that come out are prequels or remakes or retreads. And that's something I kind of get into in the piece, why that might be. Um, and we can do that without just kind of painting with this enormously broad brush and and therefore concluding that, you know, whatever the latest action movie is, has nothing to tell us about American culture, American life. And again, asking the question, why it is, why do people find this compelling? If it's so, if it's such crap, right? If your if your thesis is that this stuff is awful, then it's sort of an interesting question. Why is it that so many people seem to disagree with you? And, you know, I go pretty hard on some of the later Marvel movies in the piece. And it's not like I'm a Pollyanna about this stuff, but look, I mean, movies have been, you know, maybe the American art form for, uh, you know, many, many decades, much longer than I've been around. They had what seems to me like a golden age in the Western, the classic Western and the gangster movie um, that we've had this renaissance of of creativity on TV, some really high quality stuff, shows like Breaking Bad and Sopranos and, you know, the, the whole bad boy moment. And now it seems like we are in a bit of a trough again. And um, that does raise this question. Well, what is, you know, why why are we just banging on about these Marvel characters over and over and over again? Why can't we come up with new stories, new heroes? Why is it that if we decide as a culture we want to tell, like, stories about a gay person or a black person or a woman, we have to transform some pre-existing Marvel character into a gay person or a black person, right? I mean, that's really kind of a weird phenomenon if you think about it. It's like you can write a new story, you know, and yet we just keep retelling the same stories over and over again. So one of the things I say in the piece is that, look, these are kind of our myths. There are pagan myths, these superhero comics, and they've been that way for a long time. They they serve the same role in our culture that they serve, that myths served in Greco-Roman culture. You go back, you watch the great tragedies, and they're kind of similar to Marvel movies in that you have this, you know, big wealth of lore just sitting around, all these stories people know, people love, um, and the best of them kind of raise those stories to the level of an art form and kind of refine themes that were already latent in them. And there are, again, there are some Marvel movies, even some, you know, pre kind of uh, Disney Marvel era movies, uh, great, you know, the, the great Superman movies or Batman movies that do kind of raise these questions. Well, what is it to be American? I mean, remember, like Superman used to stand for truth, justice in the American way. Right. Um, and so now we're in this moment where that mode of cultural storytelling, which is our way of telling stories about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a hero, what it means to do right. That mode has become kind of weirdly stale and repetitive at exactly the same time as this idea of the multiverse has come up, that they've kind of dug deep into this 
in, into this idea that there's many different worlds. And this is in one way a device for them to do this retelling, to constantly revisit old stories. But at the same time, it's also having a bit of a moment in theoretical physics as well. This is a theory that's very, very uh, controversial right now among physicists and also extremely popular, very much in vogue. Um, and so I think one of the things we, we could suggest about the multiverse, uh, since it's it's not actually a provable scientific hypothesis in the traditional sense, it's not something that the equations of quantum theory necessitate. We don't have to accept it. Uh, it's just one possible way of explaining the equations of quantum theory. We might say that this is a kind of scientific myth. We think of science now as this grand governing account of, you know, exactly uh, what, what we are and where we come from and what our purpose is. Um, and we're in this era where trust the science is kind of a, a mantra of some sort of new religion, um, which is not to, um, to knock on the actual methods of science, real scientific hypotheses for finding out uh, answers to physical questions. But it is to say there's more going on here than that. There's a myth making going on. And the myth is about how basically we're uh, in a moment of chaos and staleness that, that we have to, you know, constantly retread these old stories. They're splitting off into a million different fractals, um, which is where we are in America as well. Nobody can bring unity to our politics. Nobody can bring unity to our culture. Um, so to me, it's actually much more interesting to look at this stuff in that way uh, than to take it seriously as as science, which is, you know, something that uh, a lot of scientists sort of agree is, is, is not really uh, is not really an accurate description of the multiverse theory. Uh, talk to me about uh, the laziness of kind of multiverse writing. Um, you make reference within your piece to everything everywhere all at once. Um, and you make reference to, you know, uh, kind of the ideas that are behind uh, the latest Doctor Strange uh, movie. Um, whatever you think of the uh, kind of approach the Marvel Universe uh, has had to this, um, I think that, you know, it's it's very telling to me that there is a, there's kind of a proof of concept of how you can use multiverse-based writing to make an entertaining product in the most successful show uh, that's on Cartoon Network, obviously, Rick and Morty, which um, yeah. has... You know, uh, regularly within its uh, within its premiere episodes, uh, you know, beaten HBO shows, beaten you know, kind of the top level uh, uh, content being produced for wider audiences, uh, with tens of millions of viewers and streams uh, for its you know, obviously much shorter episodes that are based within a world of uh, infinite universes, uh, at least within the central finite curve. Um, so t tell me a little bit about that as sort of a, a crutch and maybe why it sort of is a, a defect in terms of writing these pieces and, and what some of these things have gotten wrong about the way that they deploy multiverse logic. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think it's important to stress that, you know, the multiverse as a storytelling device is not you know, an invention of the last 20 years. You know, that's part of the point of the pieces is actually there's there's analogs for the multiverse in ancient philosophy and, and in, you know, Greek kind of storytelling after the high classical period. This is all, you know, well-trodden ground. You can look at, like, oh, uh, His Dark Materials is an example of, I think, a really compelling story that involves kind of multiversal elements. And as you point out, Rick and Morty, great show, you know, has, has multiverse stuff in it. And I think actually the crux of the answer to your question 
question is in the movie that you mentioned first, which is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Another movie that I kind of enjoyed. You know, I thought it, I found it very creative. Let's say it was. It was I, I found it amusing. Um, there's there's a lot of really lovely you know character building in it, um, and yet if you if you watch it carefully, you'll notice that at the core of this movie is the truth that if you take the multiverse seriously as a proposition, not just as a metaphor for, you know, the road not taken or as a kind of, you know, myth that you might tell about different kind, different parts of you, you know, all of that is, is kind of par for the course. It's the transition into saying, no, the multiverse is actually physically real. It's a, it's a true description of our reality. And um, it, it has profound implications for the way that we should think about our ourselves. And the the turning point of everything everywhere all at once, the crux of it, is that if you actually take that seriously, you become a, a deranged nihilist. Because none of your actions have any consequences, because, you know, the the, the here-ness and now-ness of you as a person whose life has meaning, whose choices have has meaning, you know, that all falls apart, it disintegrates. Um, and that's not a, you know, a, a disproof of the existence of the multiverse, because again, it's not a scientific hypothesis that, sub that submits to proof or disproof. Um, but it is a telling point about the multiverse as myth, which is that it's, it's actually a myth of nihilism and... Uh. Um, and when that movie, I mean, spoiler alert for, I guess, people who haven't seen that movie, but like, when that movie ends, Michelle Yeoh says to her daughter, you know, I choose to be here with you. And that's this very moving moment. It's also complete nonsense. Like every word in it is nonsense. The word I is nonsense because there is no I, you know, there's, there's no unitary self in true multiverse proposals. Um, choose is nonsense because some other version of Michelle Yeoh at that moment is also choosing the opposite. Um, to be is nonsense because being is a, a kind of illusion coughed up by our particular quantum state. And then with you is nonsense because there's no you either. So this is a kind of, um, you know, it, it's a resolution that's, that doesn't resolve anything. It basically says the only way to, you know, get something out of the multiverse that's emotionally meaningful is to pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, and so it's it's interesting to me that the you, you called it laziness. I think that's that's fair. The the kind of gimmickiness of the multiverse as a storytelling device it, it kind of mirrors the uh, emptiness of it as an account of our human life. Mm -hmm. I mean, one one thing just to sort of uh, you know, talk about uh, an earlier iteration of this that obviously, you know, happened within Marvel, but not within the MCU, um, was the extraordinarily popular uh, Into the Into the Spider-Verse, which breaks into, you know, multiple different Spider-Men coming from uh, various uh, different places and serves essentially as a spiritual prequel to what they just did with the, uh, you know, actual MCU-based film. Um but, you know, to sort of take a step back from it, as good as that movie is, it's really about a relationship between sort of one version of Spider-Man and another. And everything else is just kind of gimmickry in the background. You know, isn't it cool that we got Nicolas Cage to voice a noir version of Spider-Man? It's basically the, that's it. That's, that's the joke. You know, there's, there's nothing more there. Well, that's an old, you know, that's part of multiverse comics from the beginning. You know, when this this whole thing starts out, uh, the first instance of it in the in the comic books is actually DC Flash of Two Worlds, and the whole point of 
that comic is that there's kind of a first golden age of comic books where the whole thing imprints itself on our minds. This is like 30s to 50s, you know, the, 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 the real, you know, when you think of the classic look of Superman or the Flash or whatever. Um, and then there's a sort of a rebirth, and that's, you know, Flash of Two Worlds is part of that rebirth, so you've got a new Flash who looks different. And the whole point is now we get to see this old Flash, and oh, don't we all remember, you know, nostalgia. It's, it's like, it's total nostalgia porn. Again, nothing wrong with that in particular, but it's, it's not exactly a profound statement and then you get into the you know spider-man uh the 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 sort of three spider-men meeting across dimensions and as you say there's you know there's a lot being done there with the individual versions of this character that people have known and loved and there's plenty about that that's legitimate but if you actually take seriously the the proposition that they're, these are actually, you know, the same people that we saw in these previous movies, and they're now being brought back. One of the funny things about that movie is it totally cancels out every previous Spider-Man movie. It, it interrupts every previous Spider-Man movie at the moment right before its conclusion and rewrites the story of all the villains. So that then actually, you know, you, you've, what was the point of that? I mean, that was, was that all fake? Like, do we just kind of cancel that out now? And I mean, the, again, it, it's not really the point of the movie except to say that, like, the multiverse itself does fall apart when you start to look at it, you know, in those terms. Uh, which Avenger would be Harry Jaffa's favorite? <laughs> the most uh, cantankerous and combative one. Who's the Who's the snarkiest and uh, and is oh uh, obviously Iron Man? I think. Uh, well, yeah, then it's got to be Tony Stark. <laughs> he's the most kind of he's the he's the greatest genius and also uh, the most aggressive uh, snark. <laughs> Um, the the thing that is that sort of sticks out to me in all of this is, you know, there's a, there's a balance here where um, there's gimmickry, but then there's also uh, something that you can take a lesson from. I think back to uh, an episode of uh, the belated uh, show Futurama, where uh, Fry, uh, the you know character thrown forward through through time. Um, discovers that there's an alternate universe where everyone wears cowboy hats, and he and he asks, uh, you know, are there are there infinite other universes? And they say, no, just the one. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, it's just kind of a uh, it's a throwaway joke, but it does kind of uh, you know have a resonance in this moment in which you know one of the uh, items of, of gimmickry uh, through the multiverse that exists within uh, Rick and Morty is the existence of their interdimensional cable episodes, where they basically have uh, a way to do quick jokes um, about other universes just based on the fact that uh, uh, Rick Sanchez has a cable box that allows you to watch infinite uh you know cable channels from other universes um and so oh this is one where you know one of the characters is famous you know and this is a one where everyone's corn you know that kind of thing and it's it's very uh it's it's very odd uh but it's also uh, something that makes for a lot of little you know sight gags and things like that how do you uh, adjudicate between um a use of the multiverse that actually informs philosophically something about 
real existence or you know the real world as we understand it versus one that is simply being put in there for the equivalent of a sight gag or you know just a, a little nod to the audience that the you know will play on our nostalgic impulses or the like yeah, that's a that's a good question i mean and there is an element of my argument in this piece that turns on taste there's no question about that you know that and i'm i'm a like an optimist about there's about objective good and bad in in art so I, i'm not too worried about that but you do have to at a certain level you have to have a kind of smell test for for stuff that's exploitative schlock and stuff that's actually meaningful but i will say there is you know at a philosophical level there is a, a distinction that can be made and that's you know all of these stories the ones in star trek the ones in futurama the ones in rick and morty um <laughs> According to both kind of major multiverse proposals on the table in physics right now, one of which is about, you know, quantum superposition, the idea that there's things in two states at once until observed. But, you know, the, that's the traditional understanding. But then the, the many world understanding is no, actually, it's, you know, we're always in two states at once. You and I are in superposition with all the other you's and me's everywhere else. And then there's string inflationary cosmology, which is a kind of more elaborate idea um, that there's you know in existing in space-time these bubbles of space with different laws of physics that kind of spring uh spontaneously into being and that one is much more sort of uh let's say fanciful than the mathematical ones uh, according to both of those theories all of the stories that we tell about the multiverse are completely impossible because it, it, it's it's by definition, right, an alternate universe is one that you will never have any experience of. Your consciousness will only ever be in this universe, and all you're doing is kind of telling a story. So it's, you know, that's what makes it a myth, to me at least. That's what distinguishes it from actual scientific hypothesis, which is testable by experiment. It's a, it's a theory, a philosophy, a myth, um, and, and in, in my view, not actually a very good one. So the stories that use the multiverse idea as a, you know, as a, whatever, a device for jokes, as a metaphor for something, as, as an idea about, you know, like I said, counterfactuals, roads not taken, stuff like that. Um, there's plenty of potential there. It's the stories that use the multiverse as reality, as like, this is what sci science has told us this, you know, now we, because science, of course, when it actually does tell us things, has this incredible authority, this kind of irrefutable authority in our culture. Um, and one of the things that the multiverse does almost by design is kind of takes the idea of God out of the equation, takes the, the picture of God. I mean, God is kind of an alternative explanation for a lot of the questions that the multiverse is designed to answer. And um, I have no objection to somebody telling me they don't believe in God. What I have an objection to is saying science has told us that there is no God, that this is an empty, an uncaring universe of random atomic flow, right? Um, because then, you know, it's, it's basically a, a way of foreclosing the question. But science has told us no such thing. Our materialist convictions have informed our interpretation of the science, right? It's the other way around. Um, so uh, the stories like the MCU, where you have like Rachel McAdams coming up and saying, you know, I'm a specialist in multiversal physics, right? That's that scene is there for a reason. That scene is there to tell you we're not just telling a story. We're not just having a kind of, you know, mythology here. Um, we're bringing you the authoritative into art. We're bringing you the authoritative account of who we are, why we exist and what our purpose is. And that's baloney to me. 
Well, I mean, an even more uh, direct version of that in terms of the scientific claim uh, is uh, found within the the Nick Offerman-focused series, Devs, on Hulu, um, which includes a scene which I found to be, you know, very, you know, it, I didn't really like the series, but I found it very philosophically disturbing, uh, where essentially a character is convinced to commit suicide because of a, a scientific argument about the uh, infinite nature of their existence. Um, and uh, I found it to be, it's a series where, you know, uh, they're using um, artificial intelligence to uh, both predict the future and also reach into the past. You know, there's a scene where they're depicting or using AI to, to reach into the past and uh, allow people to see Christ on the cross and that kind of thing. It's very, you know, sort of philosophically focused uh, and has this veneer of scientific uh, truth and language to it that is certainly much uh, deeper uh, or plums, uh, seems deeper on uh, than, uh, you know, anything deployed within a world in which there are superheroes. Um, I found that to be a very despondent kind of dark uh, you know, modern Silicon Valley-based depiction of what's going on here. Um, and I wonder, do you think that to a certain extent, you know, the the prevalence of these stories um, is an outgrowth of frustration uh, about people who find it difficult to wrestle with uh, the simple version of reality? <laughs> uh, absolutely. No, I certainly do. I mean, there's always, and this has been true since the scientific revolution and before, you know, there's what the, you know, sort of virtuous mathematicians laboring away in their classrooms are actually discovering or what the, you know, experiments are, are revealing. And then inescapably, there is the kind of meaning making uh, stories that we tell about these things. And you see it even, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost imperceptible because we think of ourselves as so beyond myth, but you see it in the way people talk about things like quarks and bosons, right? Like they're these kind of eternal beings that behave in these, you know, eternal ways. And in fact, you know, the things that we don't, they have no way of knowing, like that, you know, outside of our consciousness or before humans existed, this is what the earth looks like. I mean, uh, people cannot help. Nietzsche saw this actually when, when uh, engaging with Darwin, right? He saw that people can't help uh, looking for something narrative to say about their place in the universe. And I, I would suggest that that's an indicator of what our purpose is and why we're here, um, but that it's not the scientist's job to furnish that for you. And the overreach, which, uh, I, you know, in the, in the piece I quote Dawkins, who in turn quotes Gigi Simpson, mm -hmm. this paleontologist, you know, every answer to the question who we are and why we exist is meaningless and irrelevant before Darwin. I think that's the overreach and that's the problem. I mean, there's a meme online where, uh, you know, you, you have the how it started, how it's going, and it's how it started, fish climbing out of the ocean, how it's going, painting of a guy tearing the skin off of his face in, in agony, right? And the, my favorite quote tweet of that meme was, yes, if you think that's how it started, you're likely to end up in this scenario. You're likely to end up going to this place. Not to say that, you know, evolution might not be physically a, a true account of, of what happened, simply that as a governing account of our 
purpose in life, um, there's, you know, the natural response to it is despondency. I think the, the question that a multiverse enthusiast has to answer is why shouldn't the guy in devs kill himself? Right. Mm-hmm. Like what is the and that's the question that ultimately everything everywhere all at once fails to answer, except by just by just sort of ignoring the multiverse. Right. You know, why should this girl not become a nihilistic supervillain? Um, and there's no answer to that question in, in the multiverse. Uh, what do you think is a way of, of dealing with uh, the multiverse or explaining the multiverse concept to our uh, to younger generations of viewers uh, in ways that appreciate the philosophical point that you're trying to make? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, look, I think this is another reason why it's important to pay attention to stuff in pop culture that makes a big splash. You know, conservatives are always pounding the table about how uh, schools are going to crap and everything's falling apart and the youth don't understand whatever. And, oh, well, okay, but, you know, we have made very little effort to understand exactly what's going on with the youth. Like, why is this such a compelling... And, you know, there's there's a natural uh, attraction to stories of heroism. They're super important culturally, so it's, of course... Uh, understandable that young people, young boys especially, love to see superheroes on on screen. I mean, I would, I guess I would just say, you know, for a kid that's watching these movies and probably getting a lot of the philosophy in them subliminally or, or you know, not think, not reflecting on them. Um, the the first question for me is, you know, what's what's compelling to you about this? stuff what's what's you know getting your heart rate up why why do you like this um and and we don't i don't think we use the socratic method enough on this stuff you know we don't actually take an interest uh in beyond the fist pounding what exactly is is going on here and then you know you start to say well okay so uh dr strange passes through universe to universe and but is he the real doctor strange or is the other version of him in the other universe the real doctor strange and it, it very quickly starts to fall apart this stuff you know if you actually ask the questions um and i would just say you know some of these things are are, are really basic and uh essential to our nature questions like what what is heroism right what is bravery what is courage um and there are lines in these movies, like if you actually take the time to watch them, that lay this right out on the table. Like the, the Scarlet Witch uh, in Multiverse of Madness says, in the infinite multiverse, there's a cure for every problem and a solution to every disaster or something like that. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly the problem. Like that is precisely what's wrong with this mode of storytelling is the cheapness of being able to come up with anything on the spot, right? Um, so, it, it, you know, I would suggest that <laughs> the kids are already super interested in this stuff, and it's it's pretty on the nose. You just have to pay attention. Uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan, who's one of the more uh, famous uh, dungeon masters, uh, is, uh, you know, the host of Dimension 20 and, and other things, uh, had this one moment where he, you know, was reflecting on something to one of the players, one of the players as, uh, as a character, and he said, you know, love is not, you know, finding in another your equal or placing them on a pedestal and uh, wishing to have reflections back at you of the philosophical depths of love. 
uh, love is the secretion of hormones in your brain in order to try to uh, maintain survival in a chaotic multiverse. <laughs> and, and, and on a certain level, I, I mean, I appreciate that the joke, but it's one of these things where, you know, I, I do think that there is a practical need to uh, create some kind of grounding for uh, the, you know, the young people who are typically the objects of these stories. Um, if the value of superhero films and superhero stories is inherently about teaching uh, young boys how to become men, uh, to learn that uh, there are things that they must do because they ought to do them and not because they want to do them or just necessarily have the power to do them, which is, from my perspective, their chief value uh, as uh, as a cultural item, uh, then I do think that the descent into a kind of, of multiverse method falls into the trap that Walker Percy identified uh, in The Last Gentleman, where he has the passage about uh, his uh, main character looking through a spyglass and seeing a woman in Central Park um, and understanding in that moment that there was one thing that he was called to do, um, not many things. Because uh, what happens to a man for whom uh, all doors are open? Nothing, of course. And that, to me, is, is, the, is, the, is the kind of lesson that some of this teaches in a bad way that we have to avoid and respond to. Well, that's extraordinarily well put. And in that capacity, it is analogous to the like infinite permutations of identity that are currently on offer. Yes. For I mean, this is something that the multiverse has become the main engine for, you know, every possible version of queerness in the MCU. And that's not an accident. They're the same concept, right? That you have this kind of flat, open field and you are a kind of widget that can be endlessly remolded and reshaped. There's no archetypes. There's no goals. There's no uh, duties for you to kind of orient yourself toward. And the Percy quote is exactly right. That's not actually liberating. It's completely debilitating. It ends in despair and, and, uh, and in just disorientation. Um, and there's one last thing on this point, I think, that I will say, and that is, you know, you ultimately, it's it's important, of course, to engage in criticism and to write essays about philosophy and, and physics, but uh, you can only ultimately refute a story with another story, right? Stories exist because they convey things that can't be conveyed any other way. If you could convey them another way, you wouldn't have to, to tell a story. And so the other side of this, besides the, you know, engaging with kids, listening to what they're interested in, talking to them about it, um, is, is making our own content, content creation on the right. I mean, a, a drum that has been banging low this many years, but it, people are starting to, I mean, the Daily Wire is doing great stuff in this in this dimension, um, telling the story that kind of replaces the multiverse. Well, what is the thing that, or, or the story about why the multiverse is actually a nihilist concept. I mean, those sorts of things, new superhero movies of our own, uh, or stories of valor and heroism that take place in the real world. Imagine that, like, you know, soldiers, stories of soldiery and, and those sorts of things. Um, also a crucial, I think, aspect of this. Spencer Clavin, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It was my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. 
I wanted to weigh in a little bit on what's going on when it comes to the abortion debate. This is obviously something where I think a lot of people have been uh, put on their back heels uh, from the perspective of the pro-life movement by the Dobbs decision and the reversal of Roe versus Wade, the, uh, the overruling of it by the Supreme Court in ways that, for whatever reason, people seem to have been mentally unprepared for, despite the fact that the court had kind of been telegraphing what it was going to do for quite some time. Here's something that sticks out to me about all of this. If the average pro-life writer or thinker had to debate abortion on the stage, you know, across from, say, John Stewart or Keith Olbermann or AOC or, you know, pick your uh, your advocate for unlimited abortion uh, in, in America, I think that they could actually do a pretty good job. I mean, the the average kind of uh, writer who was uh, engaged in these kinds of things certainly could hold their own uh, on the issue. I think that, you know, several senators, uh, several members of Congress, most of the House Freedom Caucus and and certainly the activists who have been engaged on this subject could hold their own. You could have, uh, you know, uh, a more legal perspective from the FedSoc types, a more philosophical perspective from the, you know, ethic of life people. But the truth is that that I think that most of these people could have muddled through and and made a good argument. Even I think former President Trump could have done, you know, his best in terms of uh, holding it up, in terms of, uh, you know, fighting this against anyone who was debating him on stage. And I assume that, you know, Ron DeSantis, the only real alternative for 2024 could do the same as well. These are arguments that have been very much omnipresent within the pro-life movement for a very long time. Most pro-lifers can recite them. They know how extreme the other side is. They know how to expose that extremism, highlight it for what it is and take that, that whole you know perspective on. So what does it say about the fact that most of the prominent national Republicans today would probably not be able to hold their own on on that stage? Most of them probably are not uh, at all interested in engaging in such an argument, and, and certainly many of them seem to be actively running away from it. Now, does this say that they're not really that pro-life or that engaged with pro-life arguments? Is it a sign that perhaps they're you know uh, suffering from the fact that they're not of the pro-life movement or that they're just bad politicians or bad communicators when it comes right down to it? What I think is really interesting here is that the Dobbs decision caught the Republican Party flat-footed in a way that seems to, from my perspective, have been completely predictable. Uh, every pro-lifer should have been ready in five minutes to have this kind of debate, uh, to lean into it, to be ready for it, because it's a debate that they've been saying for half a century that they wanted to have, that they wanted to have not just once, but in 50 different states across the country. The fact that these politicians are seemingly legitimately flummoxed by the challenge of having to make a pro-life argument, the most acute, the most basic political issue of their lives, really calls into question their entire careers. Why are they in politics if they're not ready to make this kind of argument, if they view it as hard, if they view it as something that they want to run away from? If you've been in Congress, if you've been in the Senate for two plus decades and you can't talk about abortion, what exactly do you say that you do here?
I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.